When you hear the word worship, what comes to your mind? I started thinking through this whole concept as we uh, started working on this series, it might get loud, a conversation on worship. And I started thinking through my own journey when it comes to this, this word worship. I started thinking through uh, just as a child. And if you were kind of raised in the church, uh, you probably grew up singing some of these songs like this little light of mine. Yep, I'm singing and Charlie can't do anything about it. You know, we sing Father Abraham for at least a good half hour because like all the actions, your arms up, feet up, head spin, turn around, jump up, sit down, you're Father Abraham. Uh, one of my favorites was this song, and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. it, it it's, I, I don't know, but we sang it all the time, especially at camp. And it goes something like this. Oh, you can't get to heaven. Yeah! And there's all these different uh, ways you can't get to heaven, like on a potato chip or in a Kleenex box or uh, on roller skates because you'll roll right past those pearly gates. Yeah, I loved it. And as like fourth and fifth graders, we'd make up our own not appropriate versions of, oh, you can't get to heaven, which I won't share with you right now because we're in church. (gasps) The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. And then I made my way into big church with big people, with adults. And I was part of a pretty progressive church, but it was still the mid-1980s, and, uh, or early 1980s, and we had uh, uh, these hymnals. And I remember like the, the choir conductor person that did this hand movement thing that I never understood, but man, she loved it, and she was emphatic with her hands. And uh, she would say, turn to hymn number 347. And I, I, my goal was to be the first one to 347. I was fast. But then I got there, and I had no clue what I was looking at. I mean, words that I'd never seen before, and phrasing of statements. I'm like, who talks like this? No one uses these and thous and begats. And I was like, I don't understand these songs. But what I knew was, when we'd sing all four verses, not not all the time would we sing all four, but if we sang all four, guess what we did on the fourth verse? Everyone stood. I'm like, who made that rule? That's strange. My dad was uh, in leadership at the church, and uh, he was an elder. And uh, I'll never forget the season where uh, the leadership kind of made this decision. And I mean, you would think that the the decision was the most uh, um, hypocritical, uh, damaging, uh, unspiritual, sinful decision that any church could ever make. But uh, they decided... To remove the hymnals from the pews. Yeah, why? Oh, there's a great, great reason why. There's this new technology called a video projector. And now you could show the words on a screen. And they're like, what would happen if people's faces lifted out of their hymnals and would actually be able to sing and look around and see the words? So they made this decision. And I tell you, the whole church erupted like that. You can't remove the hymnals. Some of you have walked in here and you've literally had the thought, they don't have hymnals. I'm not sure if this is a church. I got into college and I started to realize that one of my kind of pathways where I, I connect with God uh, at the, the deepest kind of level 
is through worship, through singing. And I started discovering this. You know, uh, for some people, they connect with God through service. For some people, they connect with God in nature. For some people, they connect with God studying God, God's word, the Bible. You know, there's all different ways. But I found out that I really connect with God in worship. And I found myself in Bible college. And in Bible college, uh, you had to go to chapel twice a week. I mean, it was just it was a horrible decision that someone made at one point in life. And you'd sit in chapel and they were boring and long and no one wanted to be there. And I found myself sitting in this massive uh, kind of a, a, a cathedral type of uh, uh, auditorium room. And they had a big pipe organ. And there was some person playing that pipe organ. And she loved to play that organ. And there was someone leading songs. And I started looking across this auditorium space, and there's some 600 or so college students there, and I started looking, and I started just watching people as one student has their books open, and they're literally studying. They're working on something, and I looked over, and there's people sleeping, but it was this moment that just kind of wrecked me. I mean, everyone's not singing, but the people on stage were, and there was a person sitting right in front of me, She literally pulled out of her purse a pair of scissors, and I watched her start trimming the ends of her hair. (laughs) Other than that being incredibly gross. I'm like, has worship become that? Like, we, we have to sit through that, but then we found a loophole to having to sit through it because... Whenever there's a rule, there's always a loophole. So they would send down the, the, the sign-in sheet to make sure you were there. And so if you weren't there, you just had your friends sign you in. I know that wasn't ethical, but we prayed God forgave us and we we're fine with it. <laughs> so my friend and I, we uh, started talking and we're like, we want to worship in chapel. Yeah, okay, we have to sit through chapel, but we want to worship. And so we got this idea. What, what if we just kind of did our own, you know, college worship service? We'd still go to chapel and we'd sit, still sit through chapel and we'd still have to uh, experience the pain of chapel. But what if we did something on our own? And so we started talking to different, different faculty member and, uh, members and the response was all the same. No. We're like, we, we want to worship. No. Can we use the room? No. Can we do it on our own? No. Can, it was just no. And it got to that kind of bizarre place where we're like, wait, we want to worship, but yet a Bible college staff and fac- faculty, they're saying no. This doesn't make sense. So we found a, a, a teacher. His name was Jeff Colleen. And I'll never forget this day. We sat down with Jeff and we said, Jeff, you're the only person that can make this happen. He kind of controlled kind of the, the auditorium that we wanted to use. And we're like, Jeff, we just want to worship. He said, okay, I think I can get this done, but you're going to have to be okay with whatever day and time I can give you. Like, fine, give us any day and time, we don't care. So several weeks goes by, and uh, he he calls us and goes, hey, come into my office. So we came into his office, he goes, okay, I worked it out. But again, you, you have to be okay with any day or time. We're like, we'll be okay. And he goes, Tuesday nights at 9.30 p.m., Okay, so we started. By the time I left two years later, and this isn't about the numbers, it was about the movement of people. We had more college young adults coming to the service than attended the college. And worship 
exploded within my soul. Worship means so much to me. But you see, so many times when we talk about the word worship, we lock it in and we so narrowly define it to singing in church. But worship is so much more than that. So we're going to spend the next four weeks looking at two verses. That's all. Two verses that we're going to break down. And these two verses give the best framework for what worship truly is. And I know in this room today, all of you have come from different places with different type of worship experiences. For some of you, you've come into Renaissance and you literally miss kind of the old hymn approach. I mean, you really like it. And you like the, the history that comes with the hymns. And you love the theology uh, that comes with the hymns. And you love the liturgy side of the hymns. And you come in here and you kind of just you know, allow us to have our kind of music style up here. And you just kind of gut through it. For some of you, you're so glad you're out of that. And the music has attracted you here. For some of you, you know, you're not even sure what worship and why we sing. You think the music is amazing. And so you're like, hey, those are great songs. But the word worship is nowhere even close to being attached to that. And so we have two goals over this next four weeks. One is just talk about why at Renaissance we worship, we sing. What this... 15 to 20 minute kind of space that we carve every Sunday into our service and why we carve it into it, why we worship. But the second piece, which is the most important piece, is why you need to have space in your life where you worship individually. See, in Romans chapter 12, Verse 1 and 2, and this is where we're going to spend the next four weeks in these two verses. At the end of uh, verse 1, Paul writes these words, This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. You see, that's the framework in which we're going to kind of operate between in this series. is to discover truly what worship is all about. I think for everyone, including myself, there's going to be great discoveries. Things that you have attached to worship might get broken off. Pieces you will discover need to fit within this context of what worship truly is, what it is about. And so we're going to discover what our true and proper worship. We're going to discover that together. So we start back in verse 1. And it says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. That word urge. Paul kind of stops kind of short of commanding something. But it's more than just a suggestion. It has the strength of a command, but it kind of has this emotional appeal of a suggestion. Hey, 
you need to do this. It's kind of like when your parents, I don't know for you, but uh, as I got into my high school years, especially my junior and senior years, they stopped commanding as much and started urging more. For instance, they would say, hey, Chris, don't you think you need to study for finals now? Right? All the underlying subtext is, Chris, you better study, and if you don't hit the GPA we set out for you, and if you don't do good, there's going to be consequences. That was all the underlying subtext. But the suggestion or the urge was, hey, you need to study. They would also urge me to be home by curfew. Hey, Chris, you better be home. Of course, I pushed that line several times. And uh, I discovered that midnight meant midnight, not 12.01. And I also uh, learned that uh, uh, all the excuses I could come up with as I was driving home as fast as I could to try to get there uh, uh, before curfew never worked. For instance, uh, Dad, there was a train crossing the road. I, I just couldn't get around it. And my dad would say, a train crossing at midnight? Oh. Hey, Dad, I almost hit a deer. So that made you late. Well, man, I was scared. I almost hit a deer, and so I had to sit there and recover for a while. I was petrified about the deer, right? Like, there's all these excuses, but my dad continued to urge me to be home by curfew. And when I broke that, uh, he would uh, uh, take away the car keys. That was effective. And Paul hears, again, stopping short of a command, But there's this emotional appeal to this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and listen to this next word, in view. See, that's a word that probably, you know, we would just quickly skip over. But let me ask you this question. What's your view of God? How do you view God? For some of you, you just kind of view him as untouchable. He kind of sits on that throne way up in the sky somewhere and he's viewing down but you don't view him as having this relationship with you. In fact, when you walk into church and you hear someone talk about having a personal relationship with God, that feels so foreign to you. Emotionally, you just can't connect to that thought. Because you just, you view God as way up there. And God doesn't really want to be bothered with these pesky human problems. And you just kind of resolve to yourself, Oh, I guess one day, hopefully, maybe, I'll have a relationship with God. Hopefully, maybe, one day, I'll get to see God and I'll get to figure this out. Hopefully, maybe, someday, I'll feel God. For some of you, you view God as a guilt giver. You just think God's sitting up there, and every time you mess up, He's there just to zap you. It's like, yep, that wasn't quite the truth. Yep, I saw how you looked at her. I saw how you looked at him. Yep, 
that business deal, that wasn't all above board, was it? And you're just tired. Because every time you mess up, every time you hedge, every time you position, every time you cross that line, you literally feel that God is just pointing out every one of your mistakes. For some of you, it's the exact opposite. You really do not feel that God can love you because of everything you've done and everything that you're doing now. And you view God that he has this limited amount of love. And as as that jar kind of empties down, you just see it and you're like, at one point, it's going to be bone dry. Now God can't love me. For some of you, it's God with a big question mark. You have tried to intellectually pursue who God truly is. And you just can't get your brain wrapped around the all-powerful, all-knowing God. The God who has always been here before time and will always be here for eternity. And you have intellectually pursued God and pursued God and pursued God. And you feel like you're just never gaining ground. And so for you, your view of God is a big question mark. It all comes back to this question, how do you view God? Because worship starts there. Worship starts there. I loved in the video when Charlie made this simple statement about God being on the throne. And then Yin kind of came right back into it and said, it's the whole view that God's first and that you're second. You see, your view of God, where you place God, how big your God is or how small you have made God will determine your worship. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, in view of God's mercy. His mercies. I use this word in church a lot. Mercy and grace, these two words. And you've probably heard them a lot yourself if you've been around church at all. You know, God's grace, God's mercy, God's grace, God's mercy. And I found myself, I just, I will interchange those words. But as I started working through this message, and I, I've read Romans 12, 1 and 2 for years and years and years. I've had it, I've had it memorized forever. But as I started getting into this view of God's mercies, I started thinking, what, what is truly, what is the mercy of God? And how is mercy different than grace? Because again, I've just interchanged those two. And what I've discovered is I've gotten into both of those words. Again, it has just expanded my view of God. You see, mercy is this. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. 
So if you picture God on this big kind of judge seat and he's looking down upon you, what God is saying, you deserve death. You know, Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And it goes on in Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. And God's looking down and he's saying, hey, Chris, yep, you've messed up. What you deserve, you're now not going to get. And he wipes it clean. That's mercy. God's saying, hey, you don't deserve this. Grace comes in and says, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. Mercy is God saying, hey, what you do deserve, you're not going to get. See, they're close. Grace says, hey, I'm going to give you something. It's going to blow your mind. Let me put it in this context. Uh, a couple days ago, I'm driving down the parkway with some great friends who are in town from Vegas. And uh, we're driving down the parkway, which is always a glorious experience. Uh, traffic was moving at a great uh, about 40 miles an hour, which is great. And, uh, and uh, I looked over and I saw this black Ferrari in the express lane. And uh, I had this quick moment where I said, I, 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 I could take that Ferrari. I know what you're thinking. Uh, I have this uh, Honda Pilot, which is six-cylinder. Wow. Loaded up with people and boogie boards. It's amazing. I could take them. Uh, And so I looked over, and there's been times I've been on the parkway where, uh, I mean, I know it's posted at 55 miles an hour, but if you're not going 70, you're going to get ran over. And yes, I'm justifying speeding, but you have to go with the flow of traffic, right? It's it's the rules of the road. And uh, but let's say you're on the parkway and you decide to race that Ferrari and you could actually take it. Uh, you're not in a Honda Pilot. You're in something a little faster. And uh, you start going and you're approaching speeds of 90, 95, 100 miles an hour and you get pulled over. Right? Now it's reckless driving. So you come in front of the judge and the judge says, hey, do you know what you were doing? You're like, hey, I was in a Honda Pilot and I was taking the Ferrari. He goes, I don't care. Because it's reckless driving, post the speed limit, it's 55, you're going 95. You deserve jail time. But I'm going to wipe that out. That's mercy. God's mercy. Grace comes in when the judge, judge reaches into his pocket. He pulls out a brand new shiny set of keys. He goes, I know. Here's the keys to a brand new red Ferrari. And you're like, yes. He goes, no, not really. It's a Vespa because I don't want you to speed anymore. (laughs) But it's a new Vespa. And it's okay. Not many people will laugh at you. Okay, everyone will. If you have a Vespa, they're a great machine. They're economical, (laughs) great on gas. I I just want you to know I'm a Vespa lover. Uh, Here's a Vespa, right? It's this gift that blows you away. Mercy and grace. See, in view of God's mercy, that's worship. Paul wrote another letter to this church in Ephesus. And uh, the, 
we call it a book. You know, the book of Ephesians is actually a letter to a group of people in a city. And uh, he wrote these words in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And Paul's just saying, hey, I, I get that at one point, we were all living like people who weren't following God. We were living like the world, not set apart to follow God, not perfect. And Paul was just addressing the fact that, hey, we all came from that place, but now we're living a different life. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. When we were, uh, when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Rich in his mercy. Rich in his mercy. But there's a piece in here when he talks about by our human nature, we deserve his wrath. You see, God's mercy is rich and his grace has been extended. But Paul realized that all of our nature, our sinful nature, deserves God's wrath. See, we don't talk about wrath a lot in church, which is probably a great thing. It'd be pretty depressing if every sermon was on wrath. And if Charlie and the worship team started uh, uh, writing songs instead of about God's love, he wrote songs about God's wrath. It'd be kind of dark. But do you realize that God's wrath is talked uh, about more in the Bible than God's love? If you were here for a Good Friday service back in April, I talked about God's wrath. And there was this moment in the garden when Jesus begged to God, God, please take this cup from me. And so many times people think that's talking about Jesus literally dying on the cross, the pain that he was going to uh, experience being nailed to a cross, and that Jesus was begging for God uh, to, to remove him from having to be crucified, but it's not about his physical death at all. See, what Jesus understood was through his physical death that God's wrath was going to be poured upon him. That on that cross, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Jesus was ripped from community with God the Father. And so when Jesus begged God to take that cup, Jesus was begging God not to pour his wrath upon Jesus. The wrath that is justified because of our sin. But yet Jesus understood God's rich mercy. And Jesus understood that by his death on the cross, the gift of grace that would be extended to all mankind 
for whosoever believes in him, for whosoever accepts the gift that's been extended. You see, we go back to the word urge. And I think for a moment when Paul was sitting there writing this letter to this group of people in Rome. And I wonder when Paul got to that one word urge, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters, if Paul's entire story started replaying in his spirit, as Paul started thinking back through what he used to be. You see, Paul was part of the religious elite. He had sat at the feet of one of the greatest theologians. He had the degree. Paul had worked his way up through the ranks to a a position of power and prominence. Paul was zealously pursuing all Christ followers to wipe them out. Paul was militant in stirring up people into a frenzy, into a mob to go after this new group of people this new movement of people, Christians. Paul witnessed and participated in the killing of people. And I think as Paul sat there in that space and he wrote these words, (coughs) I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's Mercy. Oh. Did Paul truly understand God's rich mercy on his life? You see, your true and proper worship starts with your view of God. It starts there. And that's why I can walk into church on Sunday mornings and at times not feel like singing. But I still worship God. And there's times where I can walk into church on Sunday mornings and not really like the song that they're playing and still worship God. And there's times where I can walk into church on Sunday mornings and not want to be here, but give all of myself. Because in view of God's mercy, who God is to me and what God has done in me and through me and what God has given me, that which I do not deserve, the little bit I can give back to him is my best. My 
my challenge for all of you today is really simple. Really simple to intellectualize. But to put into place in your life. You see, worship is, and you're going to hear this phrase a lot over the next four weeks. Worship is a continuous pursuit, not a momentary event. Worship is a continuous pursuit as you continue to discover who God truly is and what God desires for you, his creation. And yes, we will walk in once a week on Sunday morning in this momentary event and we will worship God. But worship must continue. And when you view God in his mercy, it will drive you every morning when you wake up and every night when you go to bed. So what's your view of God? For some of you, the next step in your spiritual journey is accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never taken that step before. And the amazing part of the story is Christ has done it all for you. You just have to receive the gift, his grace. It's as simple as a conversation with God. For some of you, you need to refocus your view of God because it's skewed and it's fractured and it's broken and it's fuzzy. And you need to place God back on his rightful place, his throne. It's the author and creator of you and everything else. One of the things Charlie talked about earlier was that um, over this next four weeks, we as a church on a Sunday morning, we're going to be discovering just different pieces of worship uh, by singing. And we're going to explore different kind of pathways on how we can worship. And uh, so one of the pieces we wanted to end with uh, today actually was written Back, I think it was 1171 A.D. And uh, it goes through uh, Psalms uh, 92. And so that's going to play, and you're going to see that verse come up on the screen. But in this space, in these uh, couple minutes that you're going to have, start the conversation with God. Maybe it's about accepting Christ. Maybe it's about rebuilding that relationship. Maybe it's about trying to remove the question mark from who God is. You know. But your view of God will impact how you live a life of worship. Listen to this.
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this space that we all that we all had this morning. And Lord, I pray that uh, our first step in worship is not only how we view you, but to fully embrace the richness of your mercies. Lord, I pray. I pray that all of us, when we wake up in the morning, we first set our eyes upon you. Lord, as we go throughout our days, we realize who you are. And Lord, as we lay our head on the pillow at night, we thank you. We thank you for being a God of grace and mercy. In your name I pray, amen. God bless, I hope you have an amazing week.